Hi, welcome to the Romance Me podcast. This is Erica. And I'm Em, and we'd like to say a special hello to our number one and only fan. Dude, I was wrong. I was so wrong. Can you ever forgive me? I don't think I can say that right now, because we haven't gotten into the Princess Bride yet. Oh. (laughs) Speaking of... Indeed. It's Princess Bride Month Woo-hoo. for the month of February. We will be taking a look at both the book and movie versions of The Princess Bride by William Goldman. In this episode, we'll be discussing the book. And in our second episode this month, we'll be trying a new format called Watch With Me, where we have pre-recorded our commentary for you to listen along while you watch The Princess Bride movie with us. We will be putting more info about this experimental new format in this episode's show notes. On to the episode! Woohoo! You know this story, right? After her true love allegedly dies, Buttercup agrees to marry Prince Humperdinck. Former farm boy turned pirate Wesley attempts to save her from that fate so they can reunite. Meanwhile, Inigo and Fezzik bromance across the Florian countryside. Yay! Back in the Unreal Unfair world, fictionalized William Goldman, the author, undergoes trials and insanities of his own, where he inserts himself, without consent, into the abridged version of the fictional S. Morgenstern's high adventure fantasy romance. Will Buttercup and Wesley fall in love again before the meta nature of the storytelling makes us want to subject ourselves to the pain? There will be spoilers beyond this point. Content warning, the hero slaps the heroine and the hero is tortured and then dies for a while. (laughs) Well, Erica, can you explain to me the meta nature of The Princess Bride? Yes, maybe. (laughs) Um... (laughs) I support you. I believe in you. You can do it. (laughs) So the author, William Goldman, is a real dude. He is also a character in this book. It's a fictionalized version of himself. Thank goodness, because I don't like him in the book very much. Yeah, so let's hope it's very fictionalized. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I looked it up. Oh, okay. Yeah, so his wife in the book isn't really like his real wife and his child in the book isn't his real child he actually has two daughters instead of one son and stuff but he name drops like his publisher and his editor and things like that and those people actually exist you know their names and such the projects that he's working on that he name drops are projects he actually worked on so parts of it is truthful and parts of it is fictional and hopefully the worst parts are (laughs) fictional we can hope but the conceit of the story is that There is this book that exists out there that doesn't actually exist called The Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern. And when Goldman was a young boy sick with pneumonia, his father read him the book The Princess Bride. And this was a great bonding experience for him. It's what turned him on to reading and it greatly impacted his life. And so when his son turns 10, he wants to give him a copy of The Princess Bride as a birthday gift. And he goes through great pains to find it because it's out of print. When he gives it to his son, his son tries to read it, but doesn't really like it. Goldman realizes he actually has never read it himself. He's always listened to his father read it. And so when he actually opens up the book, he realizes, oh, my dad only read me the good parts. (laughs) (laughs) Because apparently S. Morgenstern was a satirist. And wrote about his fictional country of Florin 
in, you know, a satirical manner, making fun of the government and all those things, you know, all the, all the fun things satirists do. And also told this amazing adventure, romance, love story, fantasy thing, right? Right. And so Goldman has the bright idea, you know what, I'm going to stop doing this lucrative movie project that I'm working on. And instead, I'm going to bully my publisher into letting me release an abridged version of this book with only the good parts in it. And that's what the book that actually exists is. It's a book within a book. And he's put commentary in the book. You know, like I cut out these parts, but these parts are exactly as Morgan Stern wrote them. We get parts of his life in the book, which may or may not be true. And yeah, does does that kind of explain it? So when we get to the actual story, like the the story that we're all here for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're not wrong. We've been exposed. (laughs) We've been exposed to Goldman's mind for a little while. And every once in a while, he'll interject, you know, some commentary. I cut out these pages because they were boring and satirical. (laughs) This is what you missed. Moving on. Here's more good stuff. Yeah. So. (laughs) With that in mind, (laughs) I'm not going to talk about him anymore while we do the plot (laughs) points, unless you bring him up. (laughs) But keep in mind that he's there. He's always there. He's watching, listening. Well, he is the god of the story. So of course he's always there. To be fair, and usually we talk about this toward the end of the podcast, but to be fair, (laughs) I don't mind the story within a story conceit or the fictionalized version of the author or anything like that. It's just he happened to write himself in such a way that was just obnoxious. Yeah. So. Yeah, he did. But we'll we'll get to that. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. That sounds very ominous. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, so this story takes place in the fictional country of Florin, and we're first introduced to Buttercup, who is the daughter of farmers, and she's basically destined to be the most beautiful woman in the world at some point. And you can see the possibility there already in her teenage face i i don't know it's a little (laughs) much honestly like (laughs) that's another thing this author does is he'll he'll put in like there was this person who was the most beautiful woman when buttercup was eight years old and there was this other person who was the most beautiful woman when buttercup was 12 and now that buttercup is 16 and the horrible fates that befell them yeah and he does that with everything because we have like the most beautiful woman the most skilled swordsman the strongest man you know we have all these hyperbolic characteristics that these people have and the author introduces them in this way which again i don't really i don't really mind it i kind of like it it is it does make it very much a i don't know it's an interesting way to read a story and and i read it i've read this story before and this time when i reread it i read it through the lens of okay it's a romance mm, because okay. technically it is it falls within our our definition and so it kind of gave it a different flavor because you don't read romances that have people introduced in this way. <laughs> no, typically not. No. <laughs> but anyway, Buttercup is destined to be a great, beautiful 
wonderfully looking person. And as she gets older in her teen years, this starts to cause some issues in the village because she has no interest in the village boys and they're interested in her and they'll ask her out. And she's like, no, I would much rather just ride my horse by myself. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) And it starts to alienate her from the other people around her age in the village. Like the other girls don't like her because she quote stole the boys and the boys don't like her because she doesn't give them the time of day and they'll taunt her. But then the farm boy who works for her dad will take care of them if they get too mean. Yes. (laughs) He is the brute squad. Yeah. (laughs) One of Buttercup's favorite things to do is taunt the farm boy. Aside from riding her horse, of course. Of Of course. course. (laughs) (laughs) She kind of treats him like her little slave. He's cool with it. He doesn't mind. And then one day, the count and countess visit the farm. And technically, supposedly, the Count is interested in looking at the farmer's cows. But Buttercup's dad is like, yeah, my cows suck. So I don't know why you're here. So her whole family is like, what is going on? Why is the Count and Countess here? Like, why? Like, the cows, really? No, the Count has heard about Buttercup's beautifulness and decided to come check her out himself. Yeah, see the beauty for himself. Because, you know, why not? <laughs> Let's yeah. come scope out the underage girl. That's cool. Yeah, that's uh, not creepy at all. <laughs> but when they get there, you know, technically they're looking at the cows. Buttercup comes out and talks to them. The count is asking her questions and stuff like that. And he's like, well, how do you take care of the cows? And she goes, oh, well, that's the farm boy's job. And so... The farm boy comes out and shows how he feeds the cows. The countess is very interested in the farm boy. And and again, kind of a gross (laughs) way. Like, why? Like, ew. Yeah. This whole weird, awkward scene ends. They leave. It's nighttime and Buttercup just cannot sleep because she has realized that she's jealous over the attention that the countess paid to Wesley, aka the farm boy. Because I don't think any other female has really paid him any mind. Until the Countess, at least not that Buttercup has noticed. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Because the farm boy is poor and lives in a hovel on her father's land. So it's not like he has anything to offer aside from like how he looks and his personality, I suppose. But who cares about that when money is important? Exactly. Buttercup is very upset. And I think, honestly, this is kind of the point where she starts thinking of the farm boy as Wesley versus farm boy. Because, oh, he's actually a person now. And she realizes that she's jealous and she actually is in love with him. He has value. Someone else wants him. (laughs) So she goes to his hovel (laughs) in the middle of the night to confess her love. And it's this beautiful, long speech. And he just looks at her and then he closes the door in her face. (laughs) (laughs) and then she goes back to bed and she's trying to convince herself okay well i tried apparently he's not worth loving because he wouldn't even say anything to me and so she's trying to (laughs) rationalize what happened i think i don't think she was expecting to be rejected no Um, i don't think she was either (laughs) i mean she's lived a pretty charmed life considering she can ride whenever she wants she gets all the attention that she wants even more than she actually wants. So the next morning, Wesley shows up and says he needs to talk to her. And he tells her he's leaving to go to America to seek his fortune. 
And she's just like, why? Is this because I came and talked to you last night and confessed my love to you? And and he's all, yes. And Buttercup <laughs> is thinking, what are you going to be doing in America? Like, why can't you just stay here? She doesn't realize that what he's trying to tell her is I'm going off to make money so that I can afford you, take care of you. Yeah. Yeah, that. <laughs> He does end up telling her, oh, I love you and I've always loved you and I love you more than you love me. Like something like, you know, if your love is a grain of sand, mine is like universes of beaches or something like that. Teenage love multiplied. Yeah, it's extreme. He's like, every time that I told you as you wish, because that's the thing, she would tell him to do something and he'd just be like, oh, as you wish. And so he says, every time I told you as you wish, I was really saying I love you. When I come back from America, I'll be able to provide for you and we can live together and be happy. And Buttercup says she will never love anyone but him. (laughs) He sails away to America, but not very long after that, her family hears that his ship was captured by the dread pirate Roberts, who is known for leaving no survivors. And Buttercup assumes that Wesley is dead because... The reputation of the dread pirate Roberts. Yeah. She doesn't think that her beloved farm boy really stands a chance against someone called the Dread Pirate. Yeah. Reasonable assumption. This this sets up like one of the main conflicts between the love interests, I think, because she underestimates him yep. constantly. And then he underestimates her too. Yep. They have like this this idea of who the other one is that just isn't true. And even though they've grown up together, they don't really know each other. Yeah, they've grown up around each other, but not necessarily with each other. Well, she's technically in a position of power over him. Yeah. Before he leaves, because she is the daughter of the boss. Yup, yup. Meanwhile, the king of Florin is ill. Oh, no. And therefore, his son, Prince Humperdinck, must now find a wife so he can have an heir. And we get a whole backstory on Prince Humperdinck. He's an amazing hunter. He's so obsessed with hunting that he and his buddy, the Count, remember the Count? Mm-hmm. One, um, two, three. came to scope out Buttercup. <laughs> creepy <laughs> Count? Well, the Count is more creepy <laughs> because he helped Prince Humperdinck build a five-level zoo of death. Yeah. I mean, he is obsessed <laughs> with numbers. It's just creepy numbers. Like, how much ca- pain can you endure? <laughs> ah, ah, ah. <laughs> one ah, ah, ah. Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> uh, so the the zoo of death is humperdinck's answer to once he's finally <laughs> king he's not gonna be able to go travel and hunt as much as he wants to so He's going to have like this special zoo with all the dangerous creatures and everything in it so that he can go hunt locally. Uh, yeah. That's fine. Whatever. Mm. He put him in a cage. Originally, what? I said put him in a cage. Have someone hunt him locally and let's see how he feels. <laughs> well, up to this point, he doesn't have any people in the Zoo of Death, aside from the albino who is in charge of taking care of all the animals. No, just animals that he tortures. Just animals. Yeah, no, that's it. He doesn't torture them, he hunts them. It's different. Okay. They live in a zoo until they get killed. (laughs) 
They're not actively tortured. Okay. There's no textual evidence. Okay. Okay, well, we'll leave your thoughts on zoos. (laughs) Maybe it's just because I find both the Count and Humperdinck so repellent. I just can't imagine that they're keeping them kindly. He loves his creatures. He is very proud of having all those dangerous creatures in his dungeon. His zoo of death dungeon. Okay, so I will give him the benefit of the doubt that he is actually really nice to them up until he releases them so he can hunt them down. Honestly, I think that's like the only thing Humperdinck cares about is his reputation as a hunter and his zoo of death. He does care about his war. Those are his two favorite things. Well, true. He cares about his war. And providing an heir. And that his senile, like, mumbling father just fucks off. But he won't kill him. (laughs) That's a good point. All right. (laughs) He's he's basically... All right. If if he were a D&D character, he would be lawful evil. Yeah, I could see that. He, He has his own code. He has his code of ethics that he lives by. They're not necessarily positive ethics. (laughs) <laughs> or what we would characterize as good yeah no he does he does have rules that he adheres to self-imposed yeah his royalty yeah yeah yeah. speaking of royalty and rules <laughs> he originally plans to marry the princess of the neighboring country gilder florin and gilder are kind of they have an uneasy relationship with each other as countries this would help solidify their relationship and bring peace to the land and it would be good politically and initially it starts going really well she comes to visit he meets her they like each other and then he finds out she's actually bald (laughs) okay and he just cannot handle this and sends her away Uh, which prince among kind of negatively impacts the relationship between Florin and Gilder. <laughs> How dare you send me a bride that doesn't have hair. Dude. Yeah, this princess, she's known for her hat collection. And every time he sees her, she's wearing this hat, different hats. And then one night, her hat blows off. Because when he sees her head. Her yeah. bald head. It's, oh, no. It's a thing. His poor eyes. However, will they recover? I know. We'll just gouge him out. It's fine. <laughs> he won't need them then. <laughs> he tells his friend. I'm ignoring that. He tells his friend, the Count, <laughs> that he needs to marry someone who's so beautiful that anyone who looks at his wife will be like, wow, that Prince Humperdinck can sure net an awesome catch like that. Like he wants a trophy wife. Basically. Yeah. Because if she's pretty, that means he's awesome. That's how it works, right? Yep. Yay, patriarchy. The Count remembers Buttercup and how she had such potential for great beauty. And he tells Humperdinck, oh, well, you should go check out this farm girl that lives in your in your kingdom. And Humperdinck goes and checks her out. And at this point, Buttercup has attained most beautiful woman in the world status. <laughs> so she is the hotness. Humperdinck. Is like, yes, I'm going to snap that up right now. (laughs) He proposes to Buttercup, but it's more like he's like, yes, you're going to marry me or I will kill you. Those are your choices. Well, (laughs) that's a thinker. And Buttercup, to her credit, she's like, you know, no, I don't want to marry you. And he goes, well, I'm going to kill you then. And she goes, well, you don't understand. I will never love again. 
I've made a vow. I am not going to love anyone. And Humperdinck is like, that's cool. I didn't <laughs> mention love, did I? I just mentioned <laughs> marriage and heir. Yeah, that wasn't part of the arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> and Buttercup is like, oh, all right. Well, you know, you did threaten to kill me, but I, I get it. And I appreciate your honesty. So, okay, yes, I accept. I will marry you instead of die. <laughs> and Humperdinck is like, cool, 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 cool. We get a time jump. Three years pass. During this time, Buttercup has been made like a princess of a little piece of florin so that the prince won't be technically marrying a commoner. And she goes to royalty school or something, you know, so she can learn how to act and be princess and then later queen. And then the time comes for Humperdinck to introduce his bride-to-be to the people and she wants to walk among the people because she's a commoner just like them, even though now she's a princess. And they all love her and they think she's gorgeous, but they also love that she's willing to walk among them and she's amazing and it raises, you know, Humperdinck's rating, all this. Yes, because public opinion is very big with him. Yeah, he really cares about it. Because the public doesn't really like him. Maybe no. because they see through him. <laughs> <laughs> but while this is going on, Someone is watching from the shadows. Santa? Krampus? Odin? The man in black. Oh, yes. Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> the ring of fire. I can make this work. Someone's walking the line. <laughs> A boy named Sue? <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> After she's presented to the people and everyone loves her, Buttercup is tired and she wants to go for a ride on her horse because that's still her main hobby. And I'll say this for Humperdinck. He allows her quite a bit of freedom, honestly. Yeah, he does. At this point of the story, he's like, you know, as long as you marry me, it's cool. You can ride your horse. You can do what you want. Whatever. Again, I think that falls into his whole lawful evil personality. He doesn't want to necessarily control her beyond using her to meet his own uh, goals. Or is it because he just doesn't care? I wonder. Uh, he doesn't care about her as a person, but he cares about her as a pawn. That is true. He kind of has like that whole narcissistic sort of personality where everything is about him. Yeah. He's using her to make him better. And then later he wants to use her to cause this war, which... Okay, let's talk about that a little bit, because it's at this point that Humperdinck decides, or maybe he decided it earlier, I don't know, but he wants to cause a war between Florin and Gilder, and he's going to use Buttercup once they're married in order to make this happen. Is the whole reason he wants to cause the war because he feels personally slighted because of the bald princess? Or is it to like make money or like... I, I don't think there's there's really anything in the text as to why. And it kind of got to me a little bit because it conflicts with him wanting an heir. Yeah. He wants the hottest woman in the world to be his bride so that he has a trophy wife. And he wants to get married so he can have an heir. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, he plans to have her killed before those two things can happen. Yeah. In order to start his war. So he's not thinking very clearly. I think that um, somebody missed like this gaping plot hole. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I kind of went through trying to find like where his mind changed from, okay, hot trophy wife and heir to murder victim. And 
It's just not really logical. I know. That's where I was confused. I didn't know if I missed something. I don't or... think you did. I think the book missed it. I think our author missed it. It makes sense that he's so self-centered that he would be upset, like a reverse, like, Helen of Troy thing. Sure. I mean, especially since, like, the misogyny throughout the book and stuff like that, like, this is what you think I'm worth, this defective female, or whatever the hell. I mean, maybe that's why he wants to go to war with them, but this is three years after that happened, and he's been engaged to Buttercup that whole three years. I guess he just can't move on, because his feelings were hurt. Well, why doesn't he get married to someone else and kill them and then marry Buttercup and have the hot trophy wife and the heir? Because, I don't know. He's he's set on a path and he's determined to see it through regardless of his plot sucks. He's hyper focused. Remember the like the hunting thing, like he just gets so focused on finding the thing of reaching the goal that he doesn't see outside of that. So narrow. Like he forgets his other goals. Maybe. Maybe. Certainly a human trait. It's really frustrating because he comes off as a really smart guy, too. Yeah. In general, he comes off super smart. He is very clever. Because of Humperdinck's plot, Buttercup, while she's riding her horse around, gets kidnapped by a trio of murderers for hire, I guess. Yeah, mercenaries, assassins. Yeah, they're not really quiet about the (laughs) plot or anything like that either. She is well aware that they're going to take her over the border to Gilder and then kill her so that her death will look like it was from people from Gilder, which will then cause this war because they'll give uh, Humperdinck a reason to avenge her. Yeah, in some ways it kind of feels like Humperdinck like hired the B team. Like, you couldn't have found, like, slightly more effective baddies. I mean, I love them. Don't get me wrong. But, yeah. Well, that's the other thing. So the so the trio, we have Vizzini, Inigo, and Fezzik. And Vizzini is a hunchback dude. He's the brains of the operation. Inigo is, like, a slim dude, and he's he's the sword. You know, he's brilliant with the blade. And then Fezzik is the giant and he is the brawn. Yep, he's the brute squad. And supposedly Fezzik is stupid and Inigo is less smart than Vizzini. But I'm not quite sure about that. No, neither am I. (laughs) Inigo and Fezzik have loyalty to Vizzini. Whatever Vizzini tells them to do, they're going to go ahead and do it. Vizzini is the brains of the operation. As they're heading to Gilder, they get in a boat, supposedly the fastest boat ever, according to Vizzini, to cross the Florin Channel. And this is the point where Buttercup tries to make her escape. She dives into the water. It's nighttime, so they can't see her. And Vizzini tries to convince her to come out of the water. He's like, you know, there's sharks out there. Wouldn't you rather be in this nice, safe boat instead of being ripped apart by sharks? And Buttercup is quiet because she would rather be ripped up by sharks, honestly. <laughs> Thank you. And Vizzini even says, I'm going to bleed into the water and stir them into a frenzy. And Buttercup's like, okay, well, I guess I'll be dying soon. All right, then. I've made my choice. <laughs> yeah, Vizzini actually cuts himself and drips his blood into the water and it does start causing a frenzy. And Buttercup is just like, all right, then, that's that's my life now, my <laughs> death now, whatever. 
I accept the consequences of my actions. <laughs> the moon comes out and, and then they're able to see her and drag her back on the boat. Freaking moon. I don't know. I really, I really enjoyed that whole scene because <laughs> Me too. it's very much like Buttercup's just like, no, I don't want to go with you. I would much rather be eaten by sharks. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, she holds her ground. A lot of respect for her. <laughs> She's like, nothing good is going to come from me going with you, so I might as well have nothing good happen now. My heels are dug in. Fuck off. Yeah, I'll die on my own terms. Thanks very much. Exactly. Agency. Woohoo. Yeah, she's she's a very pragmatic character, too. Like, she's like this throughout the whole story. She is. I really appreciate that about her. She's very much like, okay, well, this is how things are now. Oh, all right. That didn't work out the way I thought it would. Well, now I'm going to do it this way. <laughs> <laughs> Even her choice to marry Prince Humperdinck was a very pragmatic choice. Mm -hmm. She was just very logical about it. Well, all right. I don't want to marry him and have him think I'm going to love him, but he's willing to marry me without love. And I'd rather do that than die. So, all right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so after she gets pulled back in the boat, they realize they're being followed. And we, the readers, know it's the man in black. Vizzini is just so sure. Oh no, it has to be a coincidence. No one could possibly be following us. And no, he couldn't possibly have a boat that goes faster than our boat because our boat is the fastest boat ever. And <laughs> they reach the Cliffs of Insanity, which is uh, sheer cliffs that are that are over a thousand feet tall. And somehow, I forget which one. Is it is it Inigo or Fezzik who throws the rope up? Oh, hell, I forget. But one of them throws a rope up and manages to catch it on a tree. They throw a rope up a thousand feet, a thousand plus feet, and catch it on a tree. Fezzik gets loaded up with the other three. So he has Inigo, Vizzini, and Buttercup hanging on, and he starts climbing the rope. Because he's gigantic and super duper strong. As he's climbing, he's making good time. But Inigo is able to look back and he sees that the man in black has now begun climbing the rope after them. And so Vizzini starts bitching at Fezzik, like, climb faster, climb faster. We got to get up there before the man in black catches up and then we can cut the rope and he'll die. And, Yay. you know, hurry up, fool. And Fezzik is like, dude, I am doing the best I can. <laughs> I'm afraid of heights. I've got three people hanging off me. <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> Cut a guy a break. <laughs> so he reaches the top. Vizzini, I think, cuts or looses the rope or whatever. And at first you think the man in black is falling to his death. But then they look over and see that he's actually managed to catch a hold of the sheer rock face of the cliff and is now jamming his fists into cracks <laughs> in the rock face uh. to pull himself up. It is insane. <laughs> Insanity. Yep. <laughs> uh, Vizzini tasks Inigo with killing the man in black once he arrives at the top. Or Fezzik and I are going to go ahead with Buttercup and you can catch up after you dispatch the man in black with your sword. And then we get to Inigo's backstory. While he's waiting for the man in black to get up to the top, we learn about his past. And Inigo is from Spain. His father was Domingo, who is a very, very skilled yet unknown sword maker. He actually was like a subcontractor for a very, very skilled yet famous sword maker. Whenever the famous sword maker got an order for a sword that 
he wouldn't be able to do, he would go bring this order to Domingo. And they were besties. This worked out great for them. They were happy with it. And Nigo basically hero-worshipped his dad. They had a really close relationship. However, one day, the six-fingered man comes to Domingo's door and wants to commission a sword directly from Domingo. And Domingo is like, what? I don't make swords. What are you talking about? (laughs) It ends up coming out that, yes, he is, in fact, the secret sword maker. And he gets very excited about making this sword for the six-fingered man because that is a true challenge for him, you know, making it balanced for someone with extra finger. And so he does accept the commission. And he's like, we can talk about money later. A year passes. He makes the sword. It's amazing. And the six-fingered man at that point comes back and he tries to haggle down the price. And this pisses Domingo off because he's (laughs) like, you are looking at money instead of art. That is not cool. I am not selling you this sword. I don't care how much money you. This infuriates the six-fingered man. And so he murders Domingo. And then Inigo, who at this point is 10 years old, challenges the man to a duel. He loses, of course, because he's 10. Mm -hmm. And the six-fingered man gives him a slash mark on each cheek and says that's going to help him learn. And then he leaves. And from then on, Inigo takes the six-fingered sword. That's his sword. The man did not take it, which I thought was funny. (laughs) I did too. I'm like... (laughs) I don't. So he really must not have valued it at all because he didn't really even take it. So Inigo takes the six fingered sword and he goes around the world and trains with all the different sword masters and everybody and becomes an amazing swords person. And then he goes to his father's friend and says, can you look at me fight and see if I'm ready to go after the six fingered man for my revenge? And his father's friend pronounces him a sword wizard not a sword master. So he is like the top of the top of the top. He's an elite swords person. And so since then, Inigo like went and he tried to find the six fingered man, but he couldn't. And then he got upset because he would fight people, but it was just boring because it was easy to win. And then he started fighting people with his offhand and it was still boring. And and so he kind of turns into like a depressed drunk. And that's the point when Vizzini finds him and offers him a job. Vizzini is the one who got him clean. Vizzini is the one who gave him a new purpose in life. And so Inigo is very dependent upon Vizzini and is willing to do basically whatever he says. That's why he's willing to kill the man in black, even though he greatly admires the man in black at this point. He's like, this man is a badass. I really hope he's good at sword fighting because dude. Yeah, he admires his determination and skill once they, you know actually face off yeah and so when they get up to when he gets up to the top (laughs) and ego actually helps him get over the edge of the cliff and (laughs) lets him lets him rest (laughs) before they fight and he's all yeah you know i gotta fight you and kill you but hey i'd rather actually have a good fight and the man in black is like i greatly appreciate that thank you you know (laughs) like fun banter And then they face off and they both decide to first start fighting left-handed. And then Inigo is like, ha ha, actually, I am not left-handed. I am right-handed, so I will win. And then the man in black is like, ha ha, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Ditto. The man in black ends up winning, but instead of killing Inigo, he knocks him out with the butt of his sword. And then he ties him up and he heads on. Next adversary. He keeps going. Fezzik and Vizzini notice, oh no, the man in black is still following us. And so Vizzini leaves Fezzik behind to deal with with the man in black. 
And he tells Fezzik, don't go being sportsmanlike, smash his head with a rock or something. <laughs> Which Fezzik is super capable of doing. He can pick up a rock and throw it like a mile away and it'll like break apart. He's probably the one that threw the rope then. Yeah, probably. That's a good point. <laughs> I was thinking it's probably him. I mean, I don't have any specific memory of that, but it's probably him. Yeah, I can't remember and I didn't highlight that part in my book. So Fezzik is hiding, waiting for the man in black to show up. He has a rock in his hand. And then we get a flashback to Fezzik's story. Fezzik has always been very large. He was a large baby and he just continued being large and strong. And people were kind of scared of him. But then when he wasn't, um, when he turned out to not be violent, they were mean to him. And so he was bullied severely. Yeah. Like, it's sad. It's very heartbreaking. And then his parents are mean. Like, his dad is like, I'm going to teach you how to fight. And Fezzik doesn't want to learn how to fight, but is basically forced into it by his his parents. And then he turns out being really good at it because he's so strong and big. And so they start entering him in competitions and he becomes kind of like a freak in a way. Well, yeah, an outcast, an outlier. Yeah, and then, like, his parents die, and he keeps, like, he, he, like, joins a circus at one point, and he'll fight, like, groups of people so they don't taunt him anymore. Well, now it's what he knows. Yeah, but then the circus doesn't like him either, and... <laughs> yeah. He gets abandoned, and he doesn't have... He's basically... He's not a drunk, but he's basically in the same position as an ego. Like, he has no purpose in life. It's like, what am I doing with my life? And he's just taunted and bullied for being strong and big and peaceful. Yep. Vizzini comes and recruits him. And so he's super duper loyal to Vizzini also because Vizzini is the one who gave him purpose in life. However, he doesn't want to be unsportsmanlike because that was what was drummed into his head by his parents. So when the man in black shows up, he throws a rock and purposefully misses the man in black to show him, hey, I can actually kill you from far away. So I want to talk to you first. They have a conversation. Fezzik wants to do hand-to-hand combat with no weapons and have as much of a fair fight as they can. And the man in black is like, okay, sure, I guess I'll do that rather than have you explode my head with a rock from here. And (laughs) (laughs) so they fight, but Fezzik realizes he is at a disadvantage because he's now used to fighting groups of men instead of a single man. The man in black keeps escaping his grip. And Fezzik is like, oh no, I have to adjust my fighting style to fight a single person again. But while he's reaching this realization, the man in black is able to jump on Fezzik's back and start choking him out. And he manages to choke Fezzik unconscious. And then he leaves him there. So he doesn't kill him. He just leaves him there unconscious. Yeah, because he's honorable. He's on. He is. And he appreciates these two guys. He, he, I think he realizes, you know, they're just men for hire. Yeah. They both have their own sense of ethics. They both confronted me in as sportsmanlike way as possible. Like, <laughs> I mean, without just letting him pass uncontested, yeah. it was one of the better experiences he could have had. So he finally catches up to Vizzini. Vizzini has set up like this picnic. He's got wine out. He's got Buttercup sitting next to him. He's got a knife to her throat. And he challenges the man in black to a battle of wits. He's like, I don't want to fight you. I can't win that way, but I will win this. And if you don't agree, I'm going to kill Buttercup. And obviously that's what you're after. So we're to stand off unless you agree to me. So of course the man in black agrees. I think Vizzini is the one who pours the wine, but the man in black 
has this colorless, tasteless poison powder that he tells Vizini about. And he turns his back and poisons the wine and then sets the glasses down, one in front of Vizini, one in front of himself. And then Vizini has to decide which one he's going to pick. And then they will both drink the wine at the same time. And Vizini goes through like this whole like, well, obviously you wouldn't put it in front of you. Well, actually, no, (laughs) you would put it in front of you. Well, actually, no, no, I'm not sure. Actually, you know, and just goes back and forth and back and forth. And the man in black starts looking uncomfortable. And Vizini's like, ha ha, I know. And so he grabs one of the cups and they both drink. Well, he says, look over there. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, before he grabs one of the cups, Vizini turns... (laughs) He's he's so cunning. <laughs> yeah, look over there. And so the man in black turns away and he quickly switches the cups. <laughs> yeah. And then and then he takes one of them and they both drink at the same time and Vizini's like, "Ha, you are going to die because I switched the cups." And the man <laughs> in black is like, "Um, actually no, you're going to die because I poisoned both of them." Cuz I'm Batman. <laughs> I have planned ahead. <laughs> I have developed a an ability to withstand this poison and therefore you will die and I will survive. <laughs> Go me. <laughs> Vizini dies. We don't mind. Nope. So the man in black frees Buttercup and she is pissed. <laughs> she's not a good critical thinker. Like she's not thinking, oh, this, this guy is rescuing me for good purposes. She's like, this guy is stealing me from... I, I was kidnapped by these three bad guys, and now this other bad guy is stealing me from them. Yeah, but I mean, he doesn't really present himself as a rescuer either, from what I recall. No, he's not. He's not really friendly to her at all. So she might just feel like she's out of the frying pan and into the fire, the ring of fire. Yeah. You know, it just... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't help myself. It's not like he releases her and then he's like... I am here on behalf of someone who gives a crap about you or some sort of story that suggests friend, not foe. Right. He's antagonistic to her. Oh, totally. And she confronts him. She's like, Humperdinck is going to come rescue me. He's the greatest hunter in the world and he's already heading out to find me and you don't stand a chance. You should just let me go so he doesn't get you. And they argue. He starts taunting her. And then he just grabs her arm and makes her run with him for hours while they're being pursued by Humperdinck. Every once in a while, she is looking tired and he stops and lets her rest. So the reader gets the impression, oh, he's being solicitous. Buttercup doesn't see it that way, obviously. Well, yeah. But the reader is able to see, oh, he actually, you know, he's stopping whenever she's tired. You start to wonder who the man in black is or if you've (laughs) been exposed to the story before, you already know. They start talking about Humperdinck and arguing about that again. And the man in black is like, well, why do you love this Humperdinck guy so much? Buttercup's like, no, I don't love him. I've never loved him. And, you know, they start talking about love and he slaps her for being a liar. But I'm not exactly sure what she supposedly lied about. Well, he probably just assumes that she does love Humperdinck. So basically, like the man in black, you kind of might think his feelings could be hurt by her lying (laughs) he's feeling a little butthurt and so he might want to inflict some pain but then buttercup gets all mad and she says i loved once it worked out badly and he says another rich man yeah and then he left you for a richer woman 
And she says, no, poor, poor, and it killed him. And he says, were you sorry? Did you feel any pain? Admit that you felt nothing. And then Buttercup interrupts him and says, do not mock my grief. I died that day. And then she pushes him. Yeah. And he falls down a hill into a ravine. And she says, you can die down there if you want. Like, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And he replies, as you wish. And she's like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) And so she follows him down into the ravine. And she doesn't purposefully fall, but she basically falls. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She takes the plunge. Yes. The man in black is actually Wesley. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was funny because in the book it said like, you know, Wesley didn't break any bones. And I thought it was funny because I've read the As You Wish by Carrie Elwes, and he, I think he had a broken foot uh-huh. or something at that point. I'm like, no, he actually did. <laughs> <laughs> he was indeed quite injured. <laughs> at the bottom of the ravine, they reunite and argue. Wesley starts talking about how Buttercup's beauty has kept him from being lonely all this time, and she replies, enough about my beauty. Everybody always talks about how beautiful I am. I've got a mind, Wesley. Talk about that. Which I really love that about her. She's just like, fuck you, man. Stop talking about how hot I am. (laughs) They begin running through the ravine now because Wesley is too tired to climb back up. That was really funny too. (laughs) Because up until this point, she's she's underestimated Wesley, but now she kind of overestimates him. (laughs) Like she's flipped. She really does. Oh, he'll always come for me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, now it's Wesley is is a god among men and can do <laughs> all the things. And I don't care that he slapped me at all. It's fine. Well, yeah, she doesn't. <laughs> no. She's like, well, why can't you just climb us to the top? And he's all, dude, I am tired. Okay. I climbed the cliffs of insanity. Yeah. Like I climbed a thousand feet of sheer rock. I had a great sword fight. I sailed through the night. (laughs) I'm tired. Yeah. I wrestled with a huge dude. And then I'm recovering from drinking poison. (laughs) All right. Can you just let me chill a little bit? (laughs) Thanks. No rest for you. (laughs) You'll rest when you're dead. (laughs) No, even then. No rest. (laughs) True. He never gets to rest. (laughs) Even after he's dead. Oh, poor Wesley. We get a a moment in Humperdinck's mind again. He's been tracking them and he knows that the ravine actually opens up into the fire swamp. And so he's like, well, we'll get them on the other side of the fire swamp if they make it. Otherwise, oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) because no one wants to go in the fire swamp. Like it is a place no one likes. It's close enough to Gilder, right? We can still blame Gilder for this. (laughs) (laughs) he takes his men and they go around to the other side of the ravine where the fire swamp opens out into the bay or whatever yeah the bay where his pirate ship is supposed to be right because he yeah has a pirate crew that's where wesley is heading he is taking them to his ship to the ship which he does tell her eventually but he hasn't told her yet they're still running It's crazy. They get to the fire swamp. Wesley's like, okay, well, I'll just keep her distracted and it'll be fine. You know, so they're like (laughs) arguing and bantering and avoiding flames and such. And 
he warns her about the snow sand and he's like, if you fall into the snow sand, spread out so you don't sink too fast and then I'll come get you. He's just trying to keep her mind occupied, which is is fine, I guess, but he's underestimating her ability to be an adult. Yeah. She does fall into the snow sand. <laughs> And it just sucks her right down and she does exactly what Wesley says. She closes her eyes and holds her breath and stretches out her body so she can sink as slowly as possible. Wesley ends up diving in after her and is able to rescue her after after they survive that. <laughs> they kind of stop arguing as much, I think. Buttercup convinces him to tell her like where he's been this whole time. He tells her about the Dread Pirate Roberts and how after the ship he was on was captured by the Dread Pirate Roberts, everyone else was killed and he asked, can you please spare me so I can go back to my love? And this just like shocked the Dread Pirate Roberts, probably because Wesley said please. Yep, because he's polite. And he didn't make any demands. He's just like, please spare me. <laughs> Every day, the Dread Pirate Roberts is like, well, I'll probably kill you tomorrow, but today you could do such and such. And Wesley just ends up learning all sorts of things. And the Dread Pirate Roberts learns that Wesley is amazing. And he's like, okay, well, fine. I guess you can live. You can keep living. Eventually, he tells Wesley, yeah, I'm actually not the Dread Pirate Roberts either. I inherited this from the previous guy who inherited it from the previous guy who eventually inherited the title from the real Dread Pirate Roberts. So every time the Dread Pirate wants to retire, he finds a dude who can take over and then they go and get an all new crew. That's how he can keep up the reputation as the Dread Pirate. He wants to retire. He wants Wesley to take his place. And Wesley's like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Because keep in mind, he wants to earn money. So he's probably thinking to himself, yeah, I will be Dread Pirate Roberts. I will earn some money and then I will come back and get Buttercup. Mm -hmm. He's still trying to seek his fortune, I think. And he's not able to tell anyone what happened because that will ruin the reputation of the Dread Pirate. So that's... I guess why he never sent word back to Buttercup. Hey, I'm actually alive. Don't marry anyone. Yeah, I'm surprised he never sent... Like, he doesn't have to say that he's the Dread Pirate, but, like, he never sent anything back to her. Meanwhile, like, it's okay. She'll still believe that I'll come for her even if I'm dead. It's fine. Well, she did promise she would never love anyone else. Which she kept that promise. Yeah, I think... I think that's the issue. She, he should have gotten a promise that she'd never marry anyone else in addition to loving them. Yeah. And I guess it just didn't. <laughs> then this whole thing could have been avoided. It didn't occur to him that women, especially in that alleged time period, would have totally married not for love because that was basically their career choice. Well, there's even a point in the story where he feels like Buttercup owes him her love because he loves her so much. Yeah, no, she doesn't, dude. Yeah, it's kind of like a creepy thing, honestly. Yeah. I love you so much and so hard that you have to love me back. But I paid for the date. Yeah. Ew. And he read this story to his daughters, did he not? <laughs> Goldman? Not this version, perhaps, because of the slapping, but... <laughs> Well, so <laughs> fictionalized, we, we aren't talking about Goldman, but fictionalized Goldman has a son. Yes. Actual Goldman has two daughters. Real Goldman started telling the Princess Bride to his daughters when they were on a train, according to Carrie Elway's, I think, in his book, As You Wish. I'm going to accept Em's authority on the topic <laughs> because she is 
the knower of all things Princess Bride and Carrie Elwes. This is like, I think I read it like a year ago. <laughs> a lot's happened since then. I could be getting this totally wrong. Well, I'm still going to accept you as more of an authority on the subject because all I did was read the Wikipedia article on Goldman, which does not talk about any personal stories or anything like that. Which was just interesting to listen to the audiobook of this, having that in the back of my head. What version did the daughters get? And is that why... <laughs> The Princess Bride is how it is, like, and as meta as it is, and has the things in it that it does. Moving on. It is interesting. Yeah. Okay, so they're still in the fire swamp. They get attacked by the rodents of unusual size. R-O-U-S-S. Wow, that was stupid. Why did I say that? I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, that's what they're referred to in the book, R-O-U-S. In fact, that's how they're referred to initially, and then you find out it stands for rodents of unusual size. Yes, because that is what they are. This is one of the reasons nobody wants to go into the fire swamp, because they are terrifying. They are ginormous meat-eating rodents. Yeah, fair enough. They have like a bloodlust, too. Like, they're, they're almost like sharks. They smell the blood, and they all attack the bleeding thing. Yeah, like a frenzy. Yeah, so when one of them gets Wesley, and he starts bleeding, then I, they all want to attack Wesley. He manages to kill them, but then he starts packing, like, mud into his wound to prevent them from attacking the bleeding, and they start attacking, like, another rodent that he made bleed. Anyway, they escape the rodents, they get to the border of the fire swamp, and hey, there's Prince Humperdinck and his dudes. (laughs) And there's this whole fun scene where it's like, hey, (laughs) Humperdinck's like, okay, well, now you have to surrender. And Wesley's like, um, well, actually, you can come get us. In the fire swamp. Yeah, we're doing fine here. And we're great. (laughs) Humperdinck is like, yeah, Humperdinck is like all pissed off. He's all, well, you're gonna have to come out sometime. And he's like, well, actually, no, we don't have to come out. You assume incorrectly. (laughs) (laughs) And they even like get to this point, you know, Humperdinck is like, you must surrender or die. And Wesley is like, death first. (laughs) Ah, that is quite the leap. (laughs) (laughs) But then this is where Buttercup's pragmatism comes to play. And she's she's just like, no, actually, can we not die? Like, I'd rather not die. If it's all the same to you guys. I was okay with death by shark before, but now that I know that my true love <laughs> is alive, I'd like to not. I think she wants to make a solution where everyone can stay alive. Maybe not happy, but alive. <laughs> Yay, compromise. She makes a deal with Humperdinck that if she comes back to him and they still get married, that he will set Wesley free and she makes Humperdinck promise to not hurt Wesley. And Humperdinck promises he will not hurt Wesley. And Wesley says, you would rather live with your prince than die with your love. Buttercup is, yeah, I would rather live than die. Yes. Yes, I would. (laughs) And so she goes off with Humperdinck. But before they leave, Humperdinck tells his friend, the Count, yeah, no, you're not setting him free. You're going to go put him in the fifth level of my zoo of death. Thank you. Yeah. Because <laughs> Humperdinck, again, he is lawful evil. He has promised he will not hurt Wesley, which means he will not hurt Wesley personally. Yes. Loophole. <laughs> yeah. The letter of the law, not the spirit. Right. Yep. So while the Count takes Wesley to go get locked up in the fifth level of the Zoo of Death, Wesley does notice that the Count has six fingers. And we're just like, ooh. The six-fingered man. (laughs) 
I met a friend of yours. Now it's 89 days until the wedding and we're back with Inigo. Inigo has woken up. He cannot find Vizzini. He doesn't know what to do. He's kind of freaking out. So he goes back to where Vizzini found him. So Inigo basically resets himself and he's now a drunk in a bar again. (laughs) Full circle. Vizzini will know where to find me. This is where he found me before. It's fine. (laughs) Fezzik also wakes up from unconsciousness and he goes and finds Vizzini dead and now also has no purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, what will I do? And he goes off searching for Inigo because Inigo must know what to do. <laughs> he was the next one up on the hierarchy. Inigo will will figure it out. Second in command. But he's basically where he started too. And it's just kind of sad for both of those two. It's just very sad. It is. And then Wesley wakes up in the fifth level of the zoo of death. <laughs> and the albino that takes care of all the animals starts tending to his wounds and feeds him and is taking care of him and Essentially, Humperdinck wants Wesley to be in perfect health before they start torturing him. (laughs) The albino doesn't really talk a whole lot, but Wesley is able to find out from him that the only people that know he's down there are Humperdinck, the Count, and the albino, and he is going to be tortured. (laughs) But he's sort of cool with it. Like, he's like, okay, well, I can withstand torture. It's fine. Now we're back with Buttercup. And we get this whole scene where we're faked out. The king has died and Buttercup and Humperdinck get married and she walks among the people and this old woman calls out to her and tells her that she's a horrible person for betraying true love. And then she wakes up and it's a nightmare. And every night Buttercup has like increasingly worse and worse nightmares. Like she has a baby and the baby is like betrayer (laughs) or whatever. It's very creepy. And she has a baby and it's a girl because... The girl can't carry on the legacy. Yeah. Like she has to bear a son, a good son. But then she has another dream where it is the son and the son accuses her of betraying her true love. And the nightmares get increasingly worse and worse and she just can't sleep and she can't think and she just feels guilty for abandoning Wesley. Like maybe I made the wrong choice. And so she goes to Humperdinck and is like, you know, actually, can we not get married and I'll go back and find Wesley? Is that cool? I'm sorry about the inconvenience and all but he is my true love and all and humperdinck (laughs) pretends he's just like yeah yeah sure oh you poor thing yes of course (laughs) um but are you sure he still wants to marry you because you did kind of you know sell him out (laughs) it's just like oh that's true huh oh crap He's like, well, why don't you write a letter and I'll send out my four fastest ships with copies of the letter. And one of them is sure to find him. And then if he wants to come back, you can marry him instead. And if he doesn't, he'll tell my messenger no. And you and I could still get married. That's cool, right? Yeah, that makes sense. All right, sure. And then he's like, you know, we don't have to let anyone know this is happening until you know for sure. We don't want you to get embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) And Buttercup, I guess she's just feeling so guilty. She doesn't really think about Humperdinck is being awfully solicitous. Yeah. Whereas before he was willing to kill her for not marrying him. Yeah, she lacks those critical thinking skills, I guess, because she's so grief stricken 
or guilty or whatever. Yeah, she doesn't, she's not thinking about it very clearly. No. So now she basically is just waiting to hear back from Wesley. And every day she asks Humperdinck, hey, have you heard back? And Humperdinck is like, dude, no. I'll let you know as soon as I know, but no, stop asking. Are we there yet? Humperdinck, meanwhile, has plans to now murder Buttercup <laughs> on their wedding night and make it look like assassins from Gilder did it so that he can have his war. <sighs> Okay, why? Why, though? Male ego, maybe? I don't know. I mean, he wants his war. Yeah. Has he decided he doesn't want Buttercup as a trophy wife? Because, well, no, obviously she likes Wesley better than me. So she's... Yeah. She's damaged. I don't like her. Yeah, the toy is broken. Yeah, I, I guess. He's kind of a spoiled brat in a certain way. Yeah. So it makes sense that he would act in a bratty, childish fashion. Every night, Buttercup is like, have you heard from Wesley? And Humperdinck is like, no, no, I have not. Then he goes down to the fifth level of the Zoo of Death with his friend the Count and watches the Count torture Wesley. <laughs> I didn't touch him. <laughs> I didn't touch him. It's fine. They'll ask Wesley, like, who sent you? Who from Gilder sent you? And Wesley's like, nobody. I was a free agent. <laughs> and then the Count will torture him and Wesley will cry out in great pain. And it satisfies Humperdinck. He's into the torture. But the Count is is a little, like, nonplussed. He's like, I just don't know. This reaction just does not feel quite genuine. I mean, the Count <laughs> knows that the Gilder thing is a farce, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, they're they're planning to break his mind that way. Oh, maybe so they can use him as a tool to manipulate Buttercup later? I don't know. No, 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 no. So the idea is they're torturing him for not telling the truth, even though he is telling the truth. They both know he's telling the truth. Okay. But they're pretending they don't. And in this way, they plan to break his mind. Oh. In addition to his body. Gotcha. But the Count knows also that Wesley isn't actually feeling pain because Wesley is sending his, his brain away to his happy place. He realizes that Wesley's able to withstand the pain because of that and he's acting. But Humperdinck doesn't realize that. And the Count doesn't share that with Humperdinck. Hmm. Oh, no. There's a problem with their relationship. They're keeping secrets from each other. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> the bromance has issues. And then also, also, <laughs> Humperdinck has decided to make himself look like a total paranoid weirdo because now he's like, no, there's this assassin uh, conspiracy <laughs> in the thieves quarter. And he calls in his head guard person. And he's like, you have to close off the thieves quarter and quarantine all the thieves in my prison until after I get married. And, you know, it's just this whole thing. I want to make all the people do things so that, you know, it looks like I actually care when I don't. He, he gets this brute force gathered up and they go and get everybody out of the thieves quarter, except for one dude. They're unable to get like this one drunk dude out. Turns out that one drunk dude is an ego <laughs> but it also turns out that one of the dudes on the brute force is Fezzik and Fezzik realizes oh that must be an ego he manages to finagle it so it looks like they got everyone out and then he's able to get an ego and help him sober up and everything yeah so Fezzik I guess sort of rescues an ego because he yeah. gets him sobered up he gets him up to speed he starts telling him all the stuff that Inigo missed in his drunken stupor and he's able to give Inigo back purpose in life because he knows who the six-fingered man is it's the count ah oh, yes my vengeance yes and he goes like oh okay cool 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 I will kill the dude and you will help me kill the dude and Fezzik's like yeah of course I'll help you kill the dude and then Inigo's like but I am not able to make a good plan 
I need Vizzini. Fezzik's like, well, sorry, but Vizzini is dead. That is not going to happen. And he goes, well, okay, I don't need Vizzini. I need the guy who beat Vizzini. I need the man in black. And Fezzik's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Sure. It's surprising to me how much Inugo figures out, and yet he doesn't think he's as smart as the man in black. I know. I was sitting there going, you're completely underestimating your own skill, dude. He is. Because he's able to like put together all these contextual (laughs) clues. Like, okay, well, we know who hired us, Prince Humperdinck. And we know we were going to help cause this war between Gilder for him. And we know, therefore, the man in black foiled Humperdinck's plot. So Humperdinck's probably pissed off at him. So he's probably captured the man in black and is torturing him. And if we're able to go find the man in black and rescue him, then he'll be more predisposed to help us because we helped him. So it all makes sense, right? And Fezzik's like, "Uh uh-huh, sure. Totally. Yep. So we're at the point now. Inigo and Fezzik are looking for the man in black so that they can get him to be their new Vizzini. Prince Humperdinck is being nagged nightly by Buttercup. And then he goes and tortures Wesley with the Count. And the days pass this way. Now it is the day before the wedding, and the shit kind of hits the fan. The head guard guy comes to Humperdinck. He's like, yeah, I closed up the thieves' quarter. Everything's going to be fine. But Humperdinck is still being, like, super paranoid. And he's like, no, I need all my ships out there. And then Buttercup's like, yeah, all your ships but four of them. And he's like, oh, oh, yeah, except for those four. (laughs) So Buttercup (laughs) figures out he actually lied. It's a very eureka moment for her. And she's pissed, but she's also fine because she's like, well, Wesley loves me and he knows where I am and he knows what's going on. And he's going to magically figure all this stuff out and come save me because true love. (laughs) And Humperdinck is like, um... No. And Buttercup is like, you're actually a coward. And that's why you hunt because you're covering up your cowardice. This is why you've done all the things that you've done. She attacks Humperdinck where it hurts. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, oh, look, the squishy bits. Stab, stab, stab. Humperdinck gets mad and he like throws her into her room and locks her up. And then he runs down to the bottom of the zoo of death. Oh, he's like gonna kill Wesley. Well, meanwhile, the Count has finally got his machine running. (laughs) One of the ways he's been torturing Wesley is he's built this wonderful machine that causes pain, hooks Wesley up to all these different suction cups everywhere, like covering every inch of him inside his mouth and under his eyelids and everywhere. And it suctions out years of his life. Yeah. And Wesley is unable to withstand this pain. So he's been unable to go to his happy place ever since this machine has started working no more happy place yeah and the count he's this oh he's this really nasty guy i mean we knew he was nasty but he's just basically he's obsessed with pain and in in a scientific sort of way like he has this notebook and like yes so if i turn the dial to two can you tell me how bad you feel and wesley's like ah (laughs) and he's like very interesting yeah but is that like a five ah or like a seven ah (laughs) like we're on the scale is that ah Yeah, or like before he hooks him up, he's like, and tell me, how are you feeling? I am actually a little afraid. Okay, very interesting. Does the Count feel anything? (laughs) We don't think so. 
I don't know. He pro- I mean, he, of course, would feel something, like, on a sensory level, so he could feel pain that way, I'm sure. Like, I put in my notes, like, maybe he's sadistic, but I don't think he gets off on the pain. I think he's just very interested in the pain. He's very inquisitive, but yeah, I don't think he's sadistic. Yeah. So anyway, Wesley's hooked up to the pain machine. <laughs> And Humperdinck is all pissed off and he runs down there and he turns the dial of the machine all the way up. And the count's like, no, stop. (laughs) Don't do that. My experiment. (laughs) But it's too late and Wesley's death scream happens and everyone hears it, but they don't know what it is because it's so horrible sounding. One person knows. Yes, one person knows. And it's not Buttercup. (laughs) No, it's not Buttercup. (laughs) <laughs> it's Inigo yeah. Inigo's like I know that sound that's the sound of intense pain <laughs> I've experienced that let's follow that sound he and Fezzik start running toward the sound and they meet up with the albino the sound happened Inigo and Fezzik are heading that way then Wesley dies and the Count and Humperdinck are like okay well albino you can clean up this mess bye <laughs> so the albino is working on that and Inigo and Fezzik come up and they kind of bully him how do we get to where he is the albino gestures to the fake entrance to the zoo of death because one of the ways in which they constructed the zoo of death is the real entrance is on the fifth level and the fake entrance is up at the top so if you enter the fake entrance you get locked in and have to go down all the levels to get out and that's what happens to Inigo and Fezzik yeah they go on a dungeon crawl basically <laughs> kind of they do there was this fun quote like there's a lot of fun quotes in this book of course but this one fun quote you know they get locked in and they're starting to freak out and then Inigo says well let's look on the bright side we're having an adventure Fezzik most people live and die without being as lucky as we are (laughs) but they end up fighting through all the scary animals and they make it down to the fifth level and they find Wesley's dead body and they're like oh shit I really liked that moment of Fezzik and Inigo making their way to Wesley. Yeah. It's just a touching friendship. And you can see, like, they're experiencing fear. Like, they're experiencing all these things that men aren't supposed to experience, so to speak. And I love that. And they take care of each other. They do. It's such a nice bromance. Yeah, it is. Their friendship kind of foils the friendship between the prince and the count. In some ways. I think it does. Definitely. Because the Count and the Prince have their own bromance going on. They do. They spark to one another. It was just for different reasons. Rather than like, a, oh, you have a pain. Let, let me help you, brother. It's more like, oh, you like to make pain. Let me help you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. So, is all hope lost, M? Our hero is now dead. No. <laughs> I, mean, I mean that's right yeah no i mean <laughs> not just because it's a romance and you can't do that unless the hero and the heroine go off to have a very happy afterlife together you can't really do that in a romance that's not allowed <laughs> we've discussed this true you cannot kill the hero in a romance I'm, I'm not allowed to kill them and leave them still be dead and unable to to reunite <laughs> I have been chasing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, Inigo and Fezzik take Wesley's dead body (laughs) to Miracle Max. 
who is a miracle man who used to work for the king and got fired and is now just really salty about it still. (laughs) Just a little. And they want Miracle Max to resurrect Wesley so that he can help Inigo get his revenge on the six-fingered man. (laughs) They're really stuck on that. (laughs) It's given his life purpose. Yes. Him and Vizzini. (laughs) So the whole scene with Miracle Max and his wife Valerie is really great. They're just... (laughs) Yeah. Very grumpy. (laughs) I love them. But anyway, Max ends up making a pill for Wesley that supposedly will resurrect him for 60 minutes. And so Inigo, Fezzik, and Wesley's dead body go away to go enact their plot. Yeah, but it's... But then after they're gone... It's only actually 40 minutes. Yeah. He's like, oh, I made my recipe wrong. Oops. It's fine. It'll all work out. It's fine. That's basically what Valerie (laughs) says. She's like, oh, well, it'll be fine. So yeah, Fezzik and Inigo force this pill down Wesley's throat. He starts waking up from being dead. He can talk. He can't really move yet. They tell him what's going on and they kind of get him up to speed. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, you're going to be alive for 60 minutes. And like Wesley's like, but what happens after that? And they're like, we don't know. (laughs) Maybe you'll be fine still. I don't know. (laughs) And Wesley's like, why can't I just still be dead? This sucks. Like my life sucks. (laughs) Everything about this is terrible. The hero is doubting himself. (laughs) I know. Well, he did die. This is true. That would give one pause. Uh, They end up getting Wesley to help them make a plan to stop the wedding. And then they're going to be able to find the count. So Wesley's going to be able to get what he wants. And Inigo's going to be able to get what he wants. And Fezzik just wants to help. So he's getting what he wants. Yay. However, Uh Humperdinck is still doing his whole, I am super paranoid that Gilder's going to be attacking us. So he blocks off the wedding, like closes the gates and has like a hundred guards out there to protect them. And then he's rushing the wedding, like he's moved it up a half hour and he's rushing the officiate through it. And this whole time, Buttercup is like, no, Wesley will come. It will be fine. Yeah, now she has no doubt in his capabilities. Made up or real. (laughs) While the wedding is going on, they start hearing this commotion with the guards. And Buttercup's like, yes, that's my Wesley. And and it is. It is her Wesley. (laughs) She's not wrong. (laughs) She's not wrong. (laughs) They don't break through before the wedding is over. Humperdinck gets his parents to take Buttercup to his room. And then he tells the Count... Go figure out what is causing that commotion and stop it. Buttercup is being escorted to Humperdinck's room and she's kind of like realizing, oh, oh shit. (laughs) Wesley didn't come rescue me and now I'm married to Humperdinck. This is, this is not good. I am not happy with this. He's fallible. My love is fallible. Oh. I think I'm going to kill myself. Yeah, that's a logical leap. (laughs) Should have swam harder for the sharks. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Count shows up, sees who's causing the commotion, and it is Wesley, who is somehow now alive, even though he knows for sure that Wesley was dead, because he was there. And there's Inigo, and Inigo introduces himself, and he does the famous, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. (laughs) (laughs) 
And he's like, oh, you're that boy. Oh, shit. And so he, like, turns around and just runs. <laughs> My actions are coming back to bite me in the ass. This is unpleasant. Nigo and Fezzik and Wesley are following after the Count. Fezzik is holding Wesley up because even though he's alive, he's not, like, fully alive. And <laughs> he's, oh, what did they call it in the book? Because in the movie, they call it mostly dead. But they call it something different in the book, like almost dead or something. Yeah, they do like almost dead and mostly dead. They they call it a few different things. Like there's levels of dead. Yeah. Like I think there was almost dead, which was, yeah, he was almost dead when they brought him to Miracle Max. And then while they were arguing with Miracle Max, he became mostly dead. Okay. I think that's what it was. I'll trust you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> After this many years, it'd be very surprising if I didn't trust you at least most of the time. Story. So Inigo and Fezzik and Wesley are going after the Count, but Inigo is unable to break down a door and he needs Fezzik to help him. And Fezzik lets go of Wesley for a minute to go help Inigo. And then Wesley just kind of wanders off. <laughs> and then Inigo's like, go back and find Wesley and I'm going to go kill the Count. And Fezzik's like, okay. But Fezzik kind of doesn't know where Wesley went, so he's just wandering around. <laughs> Wesley, hello. Hey, castles where are big. Lots of options. <laughs> it's easy to get turned around, especially when everybody's running around like a crazy person. Inigo manages to find the Count, but the Count surprises him by throwing a dagger and hurts Inigo really badly. And Inigo is almost like going to give up. And then he starts thinking about all the people in his life. I'm going to let down my father. I'm going to let down all the swords masters who taught me and all this. So he manages to rally and duel the count and battle. And the whole time he's battling, like while he's holding his insides in with one hand. Yeah. He's pretty gravely injured. He pulled out the dagger that went in, which maybe things work different in Florin, but yeah. Yeah, maybe gravity and and wounds work differently. <laughs> that it's okay to pull things out. They don't, M, because he had to shove his fist into his innards to hold them in place. Yeah, his his gross hands. Yes. Yep. Yep. His dirty hands. That's better. But it's it's fine. He fights the count, and he's winning, and he gets the count to like say all the things he dreamed of the count saying, like "Promise me riches," and the count's like, "Yes, whatever you want," and he's like, "Ha ha, I will still kill you." <laughs> vengeance will be mine and and he does so yay, yay he did the thing goal achieved meanwhile wesley has made it to humperdinck's room he's laying on the bed in there and so when buttercup gets into the room she's getting ready to kill herself with one of humperdinck's many weapons that he keeps up there and wesley prevents her hey don't don't do that that would be a shame you're too beautiful your boobs are so pretty don't do that <laughs> that's basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> well he says her breast and maybe maybe they mean like you know the chest region sure it's not necessarily a boob it's also the <laughs> chest region it has multiple meanings true <laughs> <laughs> and i hope but i hope buttercup wasn't like slicing her boob you know i hope she was aiming for the heart oh gosh yeah, I mean, don't make it any more painful than it has to be. Aim true. Yeah. Buttercup. Buck up, buttercup. 
Buttercup is super happy that Wesley is there, although she doesn't understand why he's not standing and running toward her as she runs toward him. She like flops on him on the bed and he's all, hey, can you be a little more careful? And then Humperdink shows up in the room. He's pissed off because he's like, I thought you were dead. Why are you in here? <laughs> he's like, you're laying on the bed because you're too weak to fight me. And Wesley successfully bluffs Humperdink mm-hmm. into letting Buttercup tie him up. So good for him. Yay. Inigo shows up because he's he's now beaten the count. He inadvertently reveals that Wesley's been bluffing because he tells Buttercup, oh, help him up. And Buttercup's like, well, why would I have to help him up? (laughs) (laughs) Humperdinck then realizes, oh, shit, I got tricked. And he starts trying to escape. Conveniently, they hear Fezzik outside. (laughs) Fezzik has conveniently found four horses and is wandering around, sadly. Inigo, Wesley. (laughs) Somewhere I have three friends. Where are you guys? I found some horses. (laughs) You might need these. Where are you? So they all escape out the window and get on the horses. Yay! <laughs> escape. They make their way to the gate, but the brutes are blocking the gate, so they can't get out. Freaking brutes. And then Buttercup pulls rank on the guards and gets them to go find the prince instead of stopping them. And then they escape out the gates and ride off into the sunset. Yay! And Wesley and Buttercup promise to outlive each other so that they can now be together forever. So they are now immortal. And then there's this whole thing. How did the story actually end? The version that Goldman heard as a boy was that they lived happily ever after. But the version that S. Morgenstern wrote is that everything starts going wrong again. And the story ends while they're still being pursued. And we don't know if they're going to be okay or not. And then he writes his own version which is they got away, but then had a realistic life instead of a happily ever after because life isn't fair. Fuck you. Yep. The end. Yep. <laughs> and then if you listen to, because I did the audiobook, and if you listen to, was it the 30th anniversary version? There's like, and Buttercup's baby. So there's more. Oh, no, I don't know anything about that. It's okay. <laughs> It wasn't good, huh? There there were parts of it that were really interesting. In Hugo's love life is addressed. Like there's a woman that he loved, but he's like, I love you. You're great. Revenge is my life. Okay. And they have a kid. Her name is Waverly. Fezzik tries to protect the child. I must admit it was hard to pay attention. Okay. Sounds good. So, yeah. I feel like that's a good place to end it anyway, because it doesn't really end. Well, that is kind of true to life, right? It doesn't really end until you die. That's true. Like there is no really happily ever after, which I think is what the author was trying to get across with the way he ended this book. Yeah, no, it just it does. It's it's (laughs) I guess I would say that Buttercup's baby just continues with the theme. So if you liked the Princess Bride up until that point with the interruptions and the way Goldman carried the story through, then by all means, check out Buttercup's baby. If you didn't, (laughs) this is your warning. (laughs) Uh, Well, okay, that's a good segue because I want to talk a little bit about like the whole story within a story, the way the author wrote himself in. Yes. Because this is it is a very meta sort of story. and, And I did skip over all the little interjections that Goldman had for his his character of himself. Yes. I wanted to know, Em, do you have any thoughts about this 
this way of storytelling? How did it how did it impact the story for you? I think <laughs> if you see it through the lens or listen to it through the lens of one of Goldman's themes, which is life is unfair, then yeah, it works really well. Because there were parts where the story gets really good. And you can definitely see where Goldman is a talented, skillful storyteller and writer. The part with the sharks and tension is building and your will better cut be okay or how nasty is it going to get? You know, you're you're invested. And then he inserts with this is what S. Morgenstern did. And this is how I changed things. And I'm just sitting there going, wait, what? Now, uh huh. Now you're doing this. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> or how about um, right before Humperdinck kills Wesley, he goes into the whole thing like, yeah, my father stopped telling the story here, and yeah. I was mad and had to like convince him to tell me what actually happened to Wesley, and then that's when I came to the realization that life isn't fair because. Wesley dies and Humperdinck escapes and <laughs> yeah I just uh, it it's a tricky thing because I can totally see what he was doing there I appreciate that that is the story that he's telling the anti-fairy yeah. tale fairy tale yes. but at the same time it just feels rude <laughs> because <laughs> I'm super invested and then when he does that I'm like oh well now I don't care moving on with the story and I Literally, I think that was the moment where I was just like, okay, fuck it. And just started listening like I didn't give a shit. That's sad. So I was like, oh, this is how this is going to go. I'm going to keep getting really interested. And then he's going to come in with this arbitrary, well, not arbitrary because it's with his theme. Yeah. I was like, nope, don't care now. Let's just keep going. Let's just power through. And that was definitely the attitude I had with Buttercup's baby. I'm like, I just got to get through it, which is not... Not ideal, because he's so good at storytelling. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's kind of funny, too, because, I mean, if you've seen the movie, of course, as as I know you have, Em, but if if you've seen the movie, it gets interrupted, too. It's, yeah. It's a different way and a different character doing it, kind of, or under different circumstances, sort of. But it's it's very much like the book. Oh, yeah. And Goldman wrote the screenplay for the movie as well, so... There are whole pieces of the book that are in the movie. That was something for me, like I could watch the movie playing as I was reading the book, which was really kind of fun. But the interruptions, they always pissed me off in the movie and they pissed me off in the book too. Because just like you said, you start getting invested in the story and it's very interesting and impactful and it's an adventure story and they're in love and you want to know more. And what about Inigo and Fezzik and their bromance and all this stuff and and then, oh, wait, 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 we have to stop in the middle of this exciting part and talk about some drudgery for a minute. Yeah. No, I, the funny thing is, is I don't think it bothered <laughs> me as much in the movie, especially really? over time, because I think I just got used to it. And I mean, I remember watching that movie at such a young age. You got your nostalgia glasses oh, on. Oh, totally. <laughs> and And I think because of that, I was able to just be like, yes, and then this is when this happens. Like, I yeah. almost anticipated, and in some cases, like, look forward to the interruptions. I just, to me, they were they were definitely part of the same thing. And it didn't bother me so much as a kid. And then later, as an adult, because by that time, I'm just so used to it. So were you expecting the interruptions in the book? Or did it take you completely by surprise? It took me by surprise. I think that's why 
I reacted so violently. Because <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I didn't. And I mean, this was the re- my first time <laughs> getting all the way through it. I started to listen to it or read it actually before, I think it was a year ago or something. Like it was after after I listened to As You Wish. And I didn't end up finishing it because things happened and I got sidetracked and it was just on my list. And so, yeah. <laughs> Got through it finally. Yeah, I could see how that would be off-putting oh, if you had no idea. Yeah, and I didn't, I must admit, I didn't see quite so much it playing in my head as the movie did, especially as it carried on, mainly because there are some differences and the characters were just different to me than the ones in the movie. So it wasn't so much Robin Wright and Carrie Elway's as just two totally different characters. Although there were very iconic scenes, such as the the cliff and the As You Wish and the Falling, which are delivered very differently yeah. in the audiobook. And then my brain kicked in going, he, you didn't say it right. And then I felt very much like the Fred Savage character <laughs> going, no, tell the story right. <laughs> yeah, You're not doing it correctly. <laughs> For shame. So yeah, I, I definitely felt like I was the kid in those moments, which is interesting. (laughs) Is there anything else about the audiobook that you want to talk about? So the audiobook that I listened to was read by Bruce Nelson. I I think he did a good job. I mean, it's it's so hard because with with such an iconic movie having, I think at that point, already come out and been beloved because he's narrating the 30th anniversary edition. I think it's tricky to live up to something like that. He definitely narrates in his own way, which is good because he has his strengths and and weaknesses, too. And he didn't try to imitate the movie, which he shouldn't have. Right. So, no, I I think it was good. I think the the problem wasn't the narrator. (laughs) And the to, to be fair, the problem isn't Goldman either. It's he's definitely telling his story his way. It's just it's it was a problem for a former child who grew up on the movie and thinking of the story as one way and coming to realize that the story Goldman meant to tell was quite different. Yeah. The message is still the same from the movie. It's just, I think it's so gently delivered that it's easy to miss, especially on a kid. Yeah, well, the movie is much more kid-friendly than the book. And it feeds more into the fairy tale. Yeah, aspect. it leans into that aspect of it. It totally does. So, M. Are you happy for their happy? No. <laughs> so Goldman wanted to tell a fantastical, grimdark story about life not being a fairy tale, being unfair and thus disappointing. Goal achieved, sir. <laughs> a satirical joke, totally on me. <laughs> yep. That's basically my feelings in a nutshell. <laughs> He did a good job with what he was accomplishing, you know, with the misogyny and the casual racism and and all of that with the Goldman character not being likable and yeah. I just I thought I was getting something else. <laughs> Which any other story would probably be fine, but when you grow up watching The Princess Bride, you think it's different. <laughs> You know, even to the point where I'm sitting there thinking, like, they shouldn't call it the Princess Bride. They should call it something else. (laughs) 
the name of the book is wrong. Your fun is wrong, Goldman. <laughs> I'm bitter. I couldn't tell. <laughs> what about you? Were you happy for their happy? No, but I'm going to give a different answer than yours, even though my answer is still no. It's because, and again, I'm not approaching it from like Goldman's intent or whatever. I'm approaching it from like what their relationship was. Okay. And they didn't really have one. No. They thought each other were hot. (laughs) Yeah. And, And somehow decided to love each other based on that. Yeah, and you you made a good point, which this was before we started recording, which was, you know, when they interacted, like that scene where he slaps her and she pushes him, he's slapping Buttercup and she's pushing the man in black. Right. She doesn't know who he is at that point. Yeah. And then she's just okay with it later because she's just so happy that she possibly can get rescued. I don't know. Because she can't rescue herself because why Goldman couldn't tell his daughters that you can rescue yourself is beyond me i just i don't understand the whole the whole thing like it's supposed to be like i i mean okay no i understand what he was going for and that there's likely a reason that their their relationship isn't very deep yeah but when you look at it like were they together did they have a romance did they do this did they do that like it does not make sense yeah why why are they in love with each other They don't know anything about each other. They both have these preconceived notions about the other. At no point really know who the other person is. And every time they are together, they're either bickering or just happy that they're together finally. Yeah, that they're not being put through hell. Yeah, I'm not really happy for their happy. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Let's rate them. Yay. Let's. (laughs) How, how do you rate Wesley? I put his him as Ugsome. I don't know if I've given that rating Aww. before. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, goody. He's the first. <laughs> <laughs> He's very capable, clearly, at, at being a hero in the general sense. He does rescue his lady fair. He's capable of feats of awesomeness. But when I think of him as like a romantic hero, he does not measure up. His feelings are hurt and he hits her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought you fell in love with someone else. And and I feel entitled to that love. And uh, yeah, he just, he doesn't measure up. Sorry. He just doesn't. Yeah, their their love is a very, um, and it's meant to be, I think. But oh, it's, yeah. it's a very childish, shallow sort of thing. Oh, it's totally meant to be. I just, I am not invested. I rated him awkward okay i think that he's got potential but through the lens of a romance i didn't really understand him yeah what is his motivation his motivation is rescuing buttercup but then what then he has this trophy why did he okay so he went he came back he saw that she was getting married to someone else Mm -hmm. and then he follows her she gets kidnapped and he rescues her but he's not really rescuing her he's punishing her yeah at that point. Yeah. Was his plan to bring her back to the ship? We don't know. It's only after she realized who he is that that's his plan. And I don't know what his real plan was. He felt really butthurt and amateur about everything. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. 
And I think that's not a good place for your hero to be if you're in a story like that, you know? Like, you want to know where he stands. Yeah, I mean, and it's okay. Like, if, <laughs> if, a, if a hero, like, starts off and is, like, a childish place, I mean, they were, I don't know if they would be even considered childhood sweethearts. Because it was like, oh, I like you. Oh, wait, you left. It was so brief. He may have lusted after her for a really long time, but there was no mutual relationship happening. No, their love was a very Disney sort of love. Like, oh, I love you because you're there. Yeah, the insta love or the very polite, well, you love me, so therefore I'll love you back kind of thing. It's okay for it to start that way. It just has to, I, I don't know, I guess it doesn't have to. But for, for me as a reader to root for them, either as a couple or an individual, like they have to grow beyond that point. Yeah, he doesn't really change in the story at all. He just kind of stays the way he is, where he's super talented at everything he tries and survives dying. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't really emotionally mature. No. <laughs> How do you rate Buttercup? Uh, it's so tricky. I feel like, especially after we talked, I, I feel bad giving her this rating, but it's what I wrote, and I still kind of think it. Um, I put her as Uxum, too. Aww. I know. I liked her pragmatism. I I don't I don't fault her at all for wanting to marry Prince Humperdinck and, like, you know, changing zip codes or whatever and having a cushier life, she thought. Yeah. I think some of the problem becomes the lack of critical thinking skills. And maybe also in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, in, in the version you told your daughters, did she have critical thinking skills? <laughs> but that's not why. <laughs> it was just, I, I found myself like, I think maybe the way you read the her lines and stuff to you, like her pragmatism came through. But I think with the narrator, it just, she almost seemed a little closer to childlike or like sweet. And it just, that graded. It just she didn't come across maybe as problematic as maybe I would have liked because I, I mean I, yeah. I I was prepared to give her lots of benefit of the doubt because it's tricky when female characters aren't allowed to to rescue themselves or things like that where it's like oh Wesley will save me I'm like why can't you leave he's given you so much leeway maybe it's because oh he has to be so godlike that of course he can find you everywhere. <laughs> but then it's the oh well i'm not even gonna try i just i don't know i rated buttercup awkward also mm -hmm. again i think it's because there's this conflict of her as a romantic heroine versus what goldman was actually doing with his story yeah and as a romantic heroine she's awkward she, she's very smart she's very pragmatic she's very logical i don't fault her at all for basically any of the choices she makes like marrying Humperdinck, ditching Wesley at the edge of the fire swamp. It makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like as much as it sucks, it must have sucked for Wesley to live through that. But it made sense to me. Like she would rather them both live and then know that he's off sailing the high seas than them both dying together in the fire swamp for love. Yeah. And I respect that. I think that's great. She does try to save herself and everything until she knows Wesley is alive again. And at that point, she's like, oh, well, that's Wesley's job then. Yeah. <laughs> but up to that point, she doesn't. 
And then there is that point at the end where she stops everyone. She bluffs the guards into leaving them alone and letting them actually escape. Yeah, she she gets in touch with her inner queen. She queens herself. She does. And she does experience growth because she she starts to see like the bigger picture of like what being a ruler would actually mean for her. Whereas before, she's like, okay, fine, I'll marry you because I'd rather be married than dead. And then she goes to royalty school or whatever, and then she meets the people and, you know, the public as a princess. And her mindset changes. You know, she starts to think about things a little bit differently. But then there's those points where she's with Re- with Wesley and she's just back in that 16-year-old brain. Yeah. And that's what's awkward for me. It's very disappointing that she just keeps going back there. She's stuck there. Anytime Wesley's concerned. In Buttercup's baby, like, she actually, like, has a conversation. Gosh, does she have it with Goldman, like, in a dream or something? I can't remember now. Where she was saying that, like, no, she loved Wesley for who he was, like, warts and all. Huh. Yeah. Like, loving someone means loving (laughs) their faults, too, or accepting their faults or something like that. Yeah, she has all that conversation. I think it, it might be right after she and Wesley have their have the sex uh, or something like that. I don't know that Wesley has any faults aside from slapping her that one time. But that's sort of what, <laughs> I mean, that's sort of him, what she's I guess he's immature and childish, I suppose. Yeah, that's because yeah. I think maybe, maybe after the book was published, I think Goldman was trying to address the whole slapping thing. Yeah, that's, that's pretty obnoxious. Yeah. Which maybe, <laughs> maybe I just need to listen to it again. Maybe I missed stuff because... At that point, I because from the audiobook, the Princess Bride ends ish, like about was it seventy five percent ish in the twenty five less was the Buttercup's baby part, and I think at that point I was just not invested, like in a big way. Oh, so I'd hate to feel like I'm completely misrepresenting it, but I maybe I wasn't paying as much attention. But like I said, you know, if you enjoyed. If you're enjoying the princess right up to that point, then by all means, check out Buttercup's Baby. <laughs> it might give additional insights or it might make you resemble, you know, the bald not queen. <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's talk about the antagonists in the story. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have to say about them? <laughs> so for Humperdinck, I put him basically at awesome at awful, you know, effective. Very yeah. godlike. I also, in my head, sometimes called him Humperdinkus because <laughs> I'm five. Uh, the six-fingered count, you know, he was also effective, awesome and awful. And Goldman sometimes, he was also, like, awesome and awful, but also awkward sometimes. He was just on par with uh, with Wesley, with, with Humperdink. Oh, let's objectify the women and let me complain about my wife. Fat shame my son. Yes, fat shaming the son. That sort of stuff. What about you? I'm sure you have a list. <laughs> yeah, so I have Humperdinck, the Count, and the author. And then I also put Vizzini slash Inigo slash Fezzik. Because oh, that's the true. scene at the beginning when they kidnap Buttercup. It's hard for me to think of Inigo and Fezzik as antagonists. Or villainous, at least. Yeah, so let's talk about them first, because I think Vizzini for sure. Yeah. But then Inigo and Fezzik, they're they're amazing, awesome characters, but they are so dependent on Vizzini. Yeah. They're willing to do whatever Vizzini says. Except stop their rhyming games. 
They like their rhyming game. Yeah, right. <laughs> but for the most part, they override their own sense of, of right and wrong. Yeah, that's like, true. Like, Inigo doesn't want to kill the man in black, and he does go about it in a very, you know, gentlemanly way, but he does intend to kill him. Yeah. Even though he doesn't want to, because Vizzini says he needs to. Same with Fezzik. So I think they're very complex, but I rate them, the trio, as awkward. Okay. Because we don't get a good sense of who Vizzini is. He's motivated by money. Mm -hmm. He is self-important. He thinks he's the smartest man alive. Maybe he is. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't beat the man in black, so probably not. I just don't see how he can inspire such loyalty from Inigo and Fezzik. That's the big thing. He he has inspired this tremendous loyalty from these two individuals. And I don't know why. Well, they feel saved by him, I think. Yeah, but that only goes so far. I don't know that, that I would feel that much loyalty that I'd be willing to override my own ethics. Some people do feel that way. They They will feel a loyalty. You know, you save my life, ergo, my life is yours kind of thing. Maybe that's yeah, I guess. similar to how they're thinking. I mean, I guess my thing with Vicini and his villainous is of the three, he seemed the most willing to hurt Buttercup. Oh, yeah. It never got to that point. But I wonder if Fezzik and Inugo would have or if the killing would have come down to Vicini. I, I think they would have. I think that they would not have wanted to and they would have anyway. You're probably right. And they experience growth over the course of the story. At the end of the story, I don't think they would have. But at that point in the story, I think they would. For the prince, I rated him awesome. He's good at being horrible. He was a really interesting character, too. He had this whole, like, code of ethics. He had his talents. He was very intelligent. He had his own thing going on. I think my biggest issue with him is that whole weird plot hole regarding his motivations. Because he wants this war but he also like the reason he's getting married is to provide an heir but he's willing to kill the wife before the heir to cause this war like it just i don't know it makes no sense to me it does not well he can just find another one that replaceable he just needs a wound but it just he doesn't care i yeah it just it's weird the whole thing is weird to me yeah and then um, for the Count, I really enjoyed him as a character as well. He was also awesome <laughs> at being horrible. He was very fascinating, too. And and it was gross. Like, yeah. his interest in pain, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of gross, like sickening at points. Uh, so the author did a good job with that. And then the author as a character, I'm rating as awkward. And that's because I don't know for sure what Goldman's intentions were making his character so unpalatable. Like, is that on purpose? Or did he think it was funny? I'm not sure. I think it was on purpose. I don't think it was to be funny. I don't trust him (laughs) enough. Fair enough. I think he was writing a hotshot asshole, but I don't think he was writing it. I I just don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't trust his intentions. I don't think, I don't think he was writing it to be as funny as I think maybe he was trying to play it off to be. Especially after the fact when the Princess Bride like became such a thing. 
I don't know how much of it was a thing when the book initially came out. Yeah, the movie came out like 10 years after the book, I believe. Yeah, the movie made the book more of a, it certainly made it more of an enduring thing. I don't know how much of a splash the book made when it initially came out before our time. <laughs> and he was primarily a screenwriter, I think, too. Yeah, and, and that was, I think, very evident in the telling of the story. But the thing about him as a character is, is he's just, it, it's sticky because when you insert yourself you know, author, now I'm a fictionalized version of myself in a story. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that makes it nearly impossible for the reader to separate the yeah, two. And that may be what he wanted. You know, even though I can recognize that's a fictionalized version of him, I'm still questioning how much though. Because if you can write these things, then then what of which things do you believe? Yeah, it blurs the line. Which lines. things are you writing and which things do you believe? Where's the line? I think that's part of part of his thing is blurring the line. Oh yeah, definitely. And he did a good job, but it made the villainy of himself as a character awkward to me. Not that he could be both. He could have good and bad in him. Of course you don't really see so much of the good, so it makes it kind of one sided. I don't really see any good in him. As the character, he's he's an asshole. Like well, he's just I mean, some of the time with his grandson, it was sweet. But yeah, I mean, he's not even kind to like his father. No, he's not kind to the father character. He's a pain in the ass to his teacher. He's a pain in the ass to the people he works with. He is a jerk to his wife and he fat shames his kid and he's casually racist and misogynist. And he's just a terrible human being. Yeah. As the character. Yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> and i don't know like i i hesitate to say that about anyone who actually exists and really lived you know because we're all complex human beings we're not little cartoons that are so one-dimensional in that way but as the character he is kind of one-dimensionally an asshole Yes. So <laughs> since he is the god of that world, is he trying to say that God is an asshole? Well, yeah, because he's saying life isn't fair. That's the whole point of the story. God is an asshole oh. because nothing matters and life is unfair. Oh. It's an intent it, it's a nihilistic book, I think. There is no <laughs> meaning. <laughs> life is pointless. Why are we no here? No one is ever kind to anybody ever. Grimdark. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. But that does that does make me want more from that character like what is this character's like what is the point of this character and and i guess i mean i i may maybe maybe the, the character is doing the point you know by making me so upset yeah maybe <laughs> that is the point <laughs> but but it is it is one of those things where i just don't feel settled about it and i'm just not sure and i like things to be you know and and again this is this is approaching it from the point of view of a romance book which i know this you know, it falls within our definition, but it's very much multi-genred. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not what I would call primarily a romance book, although it has a romance story in it. And so when you read a romance book, when, when I read a romance book, I want things to be very black and white at a certain point because, because you do get that happily ever after. This book, you do not get a happily ever after on purpose, which is fine. But for the purposes of the podcast, I kind of feel like that character could have been better. If, if I were approaching it just as like a reader, not reading it as a romance, then I would feel differently, probably. I mean, I remember when I read it before, 
finding him gross, but not nearly as bothersome. Yeah, I remember when we were texting, you were like, I forgot about all of the, the intro in the beginning. I forgot about how how yucky he really is. <laughs> <laughs> or I didn't notice, I guess. Maybe I just didn't notice. Yeah, there's it's easy to not notice things when you're younger or when, you know, it's like, oh, this is considered acceptable, whether or not it's right. Yeah, there's there's that, like reading it in one time period and then living life and reading it from a different perspective. But then there's also reading it for a different purpose, too. Yeah. Am I reading it just to enjoy or am I reading it to think about it critically and then discuss it? Yeah, yeah. So it is a little different. Like, why? Why did you read it? <laughs> why did you put yourself through it? <laughs> <laughs> and on that note <laughs> how did you read the book i think when i <laughs> sort of put everything together oh it's so hard i had such a hard time reading this one and uh, i don't even know if the rating is right but i gave it a 3.5 uh, it's so tricky because i feel like as i was wondering if we were also doing buttercups baby and if i should include that and I guess I had to take out the anniversary stuff, too, that he threw in. Not threw in, but added <laughs> as part of the exceedingly long intro before you get to the story of Buttercup and Wesley, which is, I felt, what we were <laughs> going to focus on. It's just there's a lot going on. And like, am I rating the romance or am I rating the book as a whole? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I tried to like compile everything together it kind of came out 3.5 and i just stopped thinking about it after that no i think that's fair i also rated it a 3.5 oh, wow. nice because as a book i'm like yeah four stars i really enjoyed it it was fun it was interesting it made me think but as a romance like no <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but it, i mean that's the thing is it's supposed to be the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. If you accept it as what it's intended, then yeah. But for the purposes of the podcast, 3.5, I think is fair. Yeah. Yay, we're fair in an unfair world. <laughs> but on Goodreads, it's a four. Well, they can have it. <laughs> well, did you feel romanced? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Again, it's it's one of those tricky conversations because I really like the book, but as a romance, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you? No. <laughs> I mean, the romance aspect of the book did not make me feel romance and certainly the fairy tales are not happily ever afters did not make me feel more romanced. <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay. <laughs> it's like the author is taking the child version of M who loved the movie and going, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a pretty freaking <laughs> cynical person. And so I was like, oh, this was one of the things I wasn't as cynical about in my childhood. Oh, well, that's over. <laughs> stop, stop. Basically. <laughs> so true though <laughs> but see that's okay so that's kind of a funny thing because um i actually didn't see the whole movie <gasps> until i was a teen wow okay yeah and i actually read the book 
kind of almost concurrently. Like, I can't remember which one I, I did first. Huh. But everyone around me, like my friends, like you, <laughs> were all about this movie, you know? And one of the things that I've always done throughout my life is is I get book recommendations for movies because so often movies use books as source material, even if it's not obvious. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so if I like a movie, I'll go find out, well, what was it based on? And who who did they get inspiration from? And I'll go read those books. And I've often found really good authors that way. And so, of course, I read the book because that's what I do. you got to read the book if you're going to watch the movie. And I can't remember which I did first, but I remember... Um, both ways being very pissed off about the <laughs> consistent interjections because I wanted the the good bits. Yeah, what were promised you know, that are the good all my bits. My friends were talking about. <laughs> yeah, and even in the book, like we're promised the good bits, but we don't get just the good bits. We get the good bits plus his notes or whatever. And good <laughs> with the bad, like life. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's his whole conceit, obviously. Like, that's what he was doing. And, and that's fair. But I just wanted the adventure romance story. Life is frustrating. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, so while, while your, your little um, childhood memory was getting stabbed, <laughs> I was just like, yep. Well, your childhood memory was bleeding out in the gutter. Yes. I, I was just like, yeah, I remember it being like this. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> oh, I don't remember it being this bad, but yep. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and it's just one of those funny things because because I am so, quote, sheltered from pop culture or whatever from that certain era. And then, you know, I got introduced to a ton of that stuff. And it's like, oh, well, all my friends love it. So, of course, I'm going to love it. And I go into it thinking, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. And then I'm just like... <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> this is also bullshit. The parts they talked about are great, but what about this other shit? Like, why is this here? <laughs> well, then you should check out you Buttercup's know? Baby. <laughs> I'm recommending that for you. <laughs> so it's kind of amusing, our different takes on it. I was really wondering how you'd feel. And it was really hard for me to keep my mouth shut <laughs> when, when you picked out this book to read. <laughs> I was like, well, it technically falls within our definition, so sure. Yeah, I've been meaning to finish that book for so long, and I'm like, oh, fine. It's done. Let's move on. <laughs> but it's 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 one of those things where, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't still have your nostalgic fun memories and everything like that. It's just... Uh, it's just part of the whole point of the story, I think. Yeah. You know, it's like now you're a grown up and you realize that life sucks and <laughs> then you die. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes you just get reminded of that. You already thought you knew it, but then you get reminded of it. Yeah. And you remember the good parts and you leave out all the bad parts. And that's how you deal with life. Yeah, I definitely feel like I'll just focus on the good parts, which are the movie. <laughs> so, um. Uh-huh. What else have you been reading? <laughs> well, I just listened to the BBC4 radio production of Good Omens, which you know, because I gave it to you as a gift. Yes, it's good. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I second your recommendation. <laughs> so for those who don't know, because Good Omens, I feel like is a classic, not unlike Princess Bride, yes. at least the movie. Yes, I'm feeling better. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so an angel and a demon <laughs> strike 
a bargain to maintain the status quo and, you know, fuck it up because story. As a warning, since I have made warnings like this before, and in the spirit of that, there are culturally insensitive accents and characterizations. You are warned. Yeah. Oh, as a weird little side note, a couple weird little side notes. There is a BBC4 radio production of The Princess Bride, which came out last year. Ooh. For those who want to, to listen, I'm I'm curious. I don't know if I want to take that on right now. The wounds still feel fresh. I don't know what I'm going to get. <laughs> stab, stab. <laughs> I'm a little, little worried. Uh, so maybe not right Just now. Just be like Inigo, shove your fist in it, and carry on. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And... <laughs> And also, I guess in November of last year, 2021, Good Omens came out as an audiobook. So, ooh, yeah. nice. With, uh, for those, I guess, who watched the TV show Good Omens, they got those actors to reprise their roles. It's got a full cast. I haven't listened to it yet. I just got it. So I, I, I will be ooh. listening. Yeah, I liked. I am intrigued. Were you you delightfully surprised in the radio production of having that Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett moment? <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, it's them. It's them? I think it's them. Oh my gosh, it's actually them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was fun. <laughs> anyway, so what have you been reading? So I've actually listened. I've been listening to an audiobook. Ooh. It is called... Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keefe. And it's narrated by the author. Oh, cool. And it covers the Sackler family who are basically responsible for opioids in the U.S. and elsewhere. <laughs> and it is it is fascinating. There's a lot of context, a lot of backstory. You learn about the different members of the family, and it's just really interesting. It do it sounds so. interesting. Yes, it's quite a departure. It's quite a departure for me. <laughs> you know, nonfiction audiobook. I'm definitely going to check. Who am I? I don't know. <laughs> oh, the world sucks. <laughs> oh yes, let's read more. <laughs> In the spirit of life is not fair, <laughs> and I guess good omens in. The spirit of maintaining the status quo? Fuck, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the status should not be quo. Uh, <laughs> leave your quo out of my status. Exactly. Take your quo elsewhere. <laughs> no, I'll check that out. That sounds really interesting. It's definitely a kind, the kind of book I would enjoy reading and or listening to. Okay, that is it for this time. Check out our website romancemepodcast.com for show notes, other episodes, and our upcoming reads. And don't forget, you can subscribe on Apple, Google, Amazon, or Spotify, or find us on Twitter at RomanceMeCast. Speaking of Twitter, were you romanced by Buttercup and Wesley's story? Let us know what you think. And of course, join us next time when we present our very first Watch With Me, The Princess Bride with our commentary. <laughs> you have been warned. Remember to check our show notes for more info, including places where you can stream the Princess Bride movie. Not sponsored. Not sponsored. <laughs> if you don't wish to storm the castle with us, our next book episode will release on March 6th, where we discuss Butterface by Avery Flynn. Bye! Bye.
got through. My childhood has been ruined once again. You're welcome. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh my god. Oh, this is just so different from what I was thinking it was gonna be. To the death? No, to <laughs> Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs>